On this episode, we chatted with Sarah Holdren, who was tasked with adapting the book Anne of Green Gables for the Cornellish Foundation. We had a fascinating conversation about what it took to take this story from its original form to our newest core classic. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of the Building Knowledge podcast. I have with me Sarah Holdren. And Sarah is, a, is someone that we contracted with to write our latest core classic called It's Anne of Green Gables. Um, it is in our sequence and it is a book that is very near and dear to our president, Linda Bevilacqua's heart, um, because as she says, Anne is a really feisty character. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about how Anne of Green Gables um, has come to life in our newest core classic, which is going to be available on our website for purchase. So Sarah, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So um, I always like to have our authors tell our listeners a little bit about themselves. Sure. Um, Well, my name is Sarah Holdren. I am predominantly a theater director, actually, um, as well as being uh, a theater critic. I write about theater for New York Magazine and Vulture.com. So I live in, uh, well, I live in New York. Technically, I live in Jersey City, but, you know, New York. Um, (laughs) And uh, and, and, and I spend a lot of time uh, seeing theater, writing about theater, and making theater. Um, And I also, I mean, I came from a, a childhood of, of, loving books, loving plays, loving reading, um, just sort of, you know, reading constantly. <laughs> um, so it, it all, it, it led ultimately in a, um, uh, it led towards the sort of theater direction, uh, but, you know, sort of literature in all its forms has always been incredibly important to me. Um, and Anne was a big book in my childhood as well. It's so fascinating that, so I would love to know how did you get involved in the writing aspect of like the critic part of the theater? I know we're supposed to be talking about Anne, but no, it's I, fine. I yeah, yeah, yeah. Would love, love to know kind of like, how does that happen? So you were involved with theater um, and then yeah, so, transitioned. Mm-hmm, yeah. So it was actually, a, it's, it's a pretty wild story, actually. I am. Um, so I am. Uh, in in college, I think I sort of figured out that theater directing uh, was was really the place where I wanted to put my heart. Um, and uh, and so, you know, I, I, after college, I, I did a whole bunch of kind of, you know, like d- doing all the things at once. Right. You know, like working for a community theater, designing, uh, acting, you know, like like sort of getting my hands into all of the places um, because I love it all. But also because I feel like it's really useful for a director to. Um, to be able to think holistically in that way. Uh, and then I, and then, and then I went to grad school to sort of really focus in on the directing. Um, and so I was out in, uh, after grad school, I was out in the field, um, you know, working a day job and <laughs> trying to, you know, do the art thing, uh, uh, making my own project. And I went to see a show, um, at a theater in New York, just as a, you know, a civilian, um, and I really had a lot of problems with it. And, <laughs> and I had a very emotional reaction to it. Um, 
Uh, and I, I I had a friend at the show and we left and I was talking sort of passionately uh, to this friend out on the sidewalk about my reaction to this show. And she said, wow, you should really write all this down, um, <laughs> which is something I feel like I'd kind of heard, you know, people say other times in my life. But for some reason, at this particular moment, it really it clicked. And I said, yeah, I, I think I think I should write all this down. Um, and so I wrote uh, an essay, a piece, uh, essentially, I mean, a piece of criticism um, about this show that I had seen, and I just independently found a place to publish it. There's a really wonderful um, website called culturebot.com, and they uh, are just an independent, really interesting publisher of a lot of um, work, you know, a lot of essays and, and thought pieces on theater and performance. Um, and uh, and so I just put it out there into the world, and it kind of uh, made this unexpected big splash. Like, it, you know, I mean, we were sort of pre, uh, we were still in Facebook days back then, you know, but people were reposting it and talking about it. And it seemed, uh, you know, I, I I felt like I was sort of experiencing, you know, a very, uh, the theater world is small. So it's a small version of my 15 minutes of fame. Um, but then a couple of months later, I was emailed by New York Magazine and I got an email from an editor saying, introducing themselves and saying, you might know that our critic Jesse Green has recently moved to the New York Times and we are looking for a critic. And have you ever considered uh, theater criticism? And I honestly had not up until that moment, but I have always loved, I have always loved writing. Um, and writing has always been a really important aspect of my it's it's been an important aspect of my directorial work. I actually, this is sort of interesting because it connects to Anne. Um, I love Shakespeare and I do a I do a fair amount of Shakespeare and I have adapted a lot of Shakespeare. So, you know, both cut the plays and also gone sort of further into, you know, what does it mean to create an adaptation of these, uh, you know, quote unquote, classic pieces of work. Um, and so that particular kind of of getting in and playing with a piece of writing is really important to me. But also my own uh, my own writing in response to these plays has been a big part of working on them. I I often sit with a project and write a kind of short essay before I start that is my articulation of sort of why I'm doing the thing in the first place, something I can share with the company that's assembled to do this play, right? Actors, designers, producers, something, you know, where I can say, here's what I think uh, this thing is really about, right? And not just plot summary, but like, here's what I think the essence of this thing is, like what it's, you know, what it's really grappling with. And here's my articulation of that. And then my articulation of, um, why I think this is worth exploring and and like what the vocabulary we're going to use to explore it is going to be. So that type of writing has always been really has has been very present in my life and I think is very connected to critical writing because they're sort of flip sides of each other. Like that type of writing is um is a sort of, you know, it's a pretext, right? It's a dramaturgical kind of like here's here here we go. Here's the approach. You know, and then criticism is a post text. It's trying to get in there and figure out, okay, what was the approach? You know, what what did someone set out to do with this with this thing? Um, and how does the thing that they built work? Um, you know, and and sort of what was the uh, you know, what's my best guess as to how how this you know Gesamtkunstwerk, how all of these components came together, what the impetus behind it was, and how can I articulate something about? Um, I don't really want to use the word success, but about like, you know, the efficacy of that, uh, of the results. So that's, that's how it happened. I, I was, I was, I wrote a thing and it was, and it was found, it was read, um, which is pretty, it felt pretty wild at the time. <laughs> I think this is, that is totally amazing that after one piece and how that all even came about that 
you didn't even set out to do this. And then somehow now this is, and it probably seems natural to you now that that's just part of your life is that you're, that you're doing this critic, you know, doing this, the crit, the critique part along with all these other things within the theater. So crazy. It is wild. I mean, it's, yeah, it's not something I ever could have predicted. Um, it is, uh, it is, it remains very, it, it always will be incredibly important to me to sort of, um, to, to balance and to assert uh, my my identity as both, as both a, a, an artist and a writer about art, the, the director and a critic. Um, and it can be tricky to try and like find this, the space and the, uh, for both those things. And, and also just sort of like the, um, uh, you know, like the, the kind of switching back and forth between the mindsets is a really interesting thing to consistently be doing. Um, but, uh, but it, but it does at this point feel very, it feels like a part of myself that was always there. Um, I just hadn't necessarily expected it to manifest in this way. So I think that's kind of a cool segue into Anne, you know, how who she is as a person. So before we talk about how you actually do the adaptations, because I think our, our listeners will find that fascinating. Let's talk just a little bit about who Anne of Green Gables actually is. Yeah. So I, I love this book so much. Um, very much like Linda, um, uh, it was a big part of my childhood, as was the um, there was this original adaptation of it um, this, on the on Canadian television back in the day. And that was huge, I think, for like girls my age. <laughs> uh, you know, now there are a million more. So, you know, which is great. Like there are all sorts of interpretations of Anne. But I really remember that one um, and and identified so much with this character as a child. Um, so Anne is uh, an orphan. Uh, on Prince Edward Island in Canada. So she comes to Prince Edward Island, this little island um, off the eastern coast of Canada, the smallest province in Canada, at the very beginning of the book. And she's been in an orphanage. um, And she has been adopted by two older siblings named Matthew and Marilla Cuthbert, um, who kind of, they live on Prince Edward Island in this very small town called Avonlea. Um, and she has been adopted by accident. Um, Marilla and Matthew Cuthbert, uh, who are getting on in years, have decided that they want a boy to help them with the work around the farm. Um, and, he, and despite the kind of suspicions and, and you know, uh, hesitations of their very sort of well-meaning but gossipy neighbors, they've decided to go out and adopt a boy, but really not for sentimental reasons, for like work reasons. <laughs> and so... Uh, Somehow the the message they send to the orphanage gets misinterpreted and Matthew arrives at a train station to discover this little diminutive, wide-eyed, red-haired, bright red-haired girl, um, you know, with a falling apart carpet bag uh, who says, you know, who, who and, and realizes this is the child that's been uh, that, you know, that they're supposed to adopt. And he he's too shy and kind of overcome to deal with that in the moment. So he just takes her home. Um, and it begins as this huge conflict, right? Like, will they keep her? This was a mistake. Uh, and then, of course, it 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 um, transpires into this wonderful novel about her 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 life with them. And um, and she is, I mean, the reason that people tend to be so overwhelmed by her <laughs> upon first meeting her um, is that she's sort of she's she's so she's she's so much bigger than her, uh, than, than her little, you know, her sort of little body appears, right? She's this like diminutive, underfed, undernourished, um, you know, uh, child who has been alone in the world. And yet like this massive, massive personality 
comes pouring out of her. Um, and, you know, even though she famously hates her own red hair, it's this kind of wonderful symbol of how much, you know, brightness and fire and, and, and eccentricity, right. And like difference there is in her. She's not like other people. She's not a normal um, sort of obedient little girl. Um, and right away, uh, she's telling stories. She's, you know, she talks nonstop. She she makes up these beautiful fairy tales in her head. She's read as much as she can possibly get her hands on, even though she's never really been, you know, she's she's been in and out of school. She hasn't had um, a complete education, but anything that she has been able to have, she's grabbed onto and has been voracious and has read as many, you know, sort of fairy tales and old Arthurian legends um, and poetry as she can. Uh, and her and she the thing that she clings to is is her imagination. That is it's it's sort of her sustaining force. Um, and she uh, she has this famous phrase right about um, she loves it when things give her, quote unquote, scope for the imagination. So, you know, it's like she'll see a beautiful uh, uh, avenue of white trees and be overcome by how gorgeous they are, because, you know, like this this beauty in the world gives her such scope for the imagination and she can kind of. Um, you know, her mind can like run free into these places of uh, of romance and and um, and uh, like just these incredible stories that she's able to create. Um, and so I think, you know, the thing that makes her immediately so compelling and so special is that we just get this like tidal wave um, of of vibrance, of vibrancy and um, and of like curiosity of of, you know, huge sort of intellectual passion for the world and like desire to find out about things um and to create and to and to absorb like just this like massive massive personality inside of this little person who's seemingly been so starved for attention and who you know for it may it would make sense for this person to be to be sort of stunted right to be like emotionally stunted to be intellectually stunted to have been you know to have not really been allowed to grow and instead she's sort of grabbed everything that she can and has inside of herself really like begun this amazing process of, um, of, of having this, like, uh, having this, this very, really beautiful relationship with the world that begins with her own imaginative capacity. Um, so I think that's, you know, it's, it's, and, and then of course, like, you know, because she's so romantic and because she's so full of energy and because she's so, you know, um, uh, kind of uh, brave to the point of recklessness sometimes, you know, she gets into all of these crazy scrapes um, and has to kind of work her way out of them and figure things out as she goes along. Um, and so she's a great, uh, she's a wonderful character to follow through a book because she's like, Matthew and Marilla constantly say like, it's never boring. <laughs> like something, something's always going to happen with Anne around, you know, whether or not it's an adventure or like a huge mistake. Um, but, you know, everything she does, she does, 200 percent so yeah yeah. I, th I think she's like such a good role model because i think in some ways especially um i think it's more pronounced since covid is that sometimes children are 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 like so fearful of everything and she doesn't have fear like it's just try it it's okay if, if you yeah. fail it's okay you get in a scrape it's okay we'll figure it out like nothing that's wreck, you know, so reckless that you're going to be hurt. But like, sometimes you have to be a little reckless to, you know, to figure out the world. And that's how she figures out the world around her. Yeah, she has a, she has a ton of courage. And I think it's interesting because I think it's actually like, 
the thing that's so beautiful about it is that it isn't, um, you know, it isn't kind of, it's not like conscious sort of hard courage in the sense of like, oh, like I'm going to be brave and take things on. It's like what it comes, I think it's what it's attached to is her, is her curiosity and also her sort of like belief that things are beautiful. You know, like it's attached to her sort of like belief in beauty and her interest in things, right? So it's like, um, it's not a matter of kind of like aggressively facing the world. It's this matter of being like incredibly open and just being like, I, I, I'm fascinated by experience and I want to learn. And of course I want to know what it's like to get in a boat and pretend to be the lady of Shalott and float down the river and romantically act out this poem that I've always loved. And Oh no, the boat is sinking. What am I going to do? <laughs> you know, like it's, you know, these sort of, these things all come out of her, uh, her, her love for, for, for language, for words, for the world around her, for nature. Like they all, they all come out of this really sort of, beautiful place of um of of just of being so there, there's there's a wonderful moment and I can't remember exactly how it goes I'll, I'll probably paraphrase it badly but there's a wonderful moment in the book where she says something about it's it's hard to stay sad for very long when there's so it's, it's essentially like when there's so much beauty in the world but you know it's like because she does she has these she loses things she loses people she has travails she has uh, moments of great uh heartache and at the same time she's kind of constantly either literally or metaphorically sort of looking out the window and, and seeing all this beauty um, and seeing so much to be interested in and to kind of keep pursuing in the world. And so there's a lot of, you know, you talk, you talk about um, there's been a lot of movies, series, and then other adaptations about, about Anne. So how did, what was your process and how did you go about creating this Cornellage adaptation? Sure. I mean, for this, I think, you know, it's it uh, I wanted for it to feel uh, I think for this one, you know, I, I didn't want it to feel adaptive in the sense of, you know, some heavy hand coming in and and, you know, messing about too much with um, what Lucy Maud Montgomery uh, created, which is so, it's so wonderful. I mean, when I went back and, for, you know, I, the first thing I did, of course, is just reread the book several times in a row um, and just like was delighted, <laughs> you know, kind of sat down wondering, right? Like what, you know, you go back to a book from your childhood or at this point in our kind of human history, right? Like a book written in 1908 or, you know, and you wonder sort of like, oh, is this going to be how I remember it? You know, are there going to be things that feel uncomfortable or, you know, just not the same now? And actually reading it again, I was so consistently just like delighted, amused, entertained, moved. Um, her Lucy Maud Montgomery's writing is so crisp and lovely and wry. Like she's got such a, a wonderful kind of, you know, dry sense of humor, really lovely and generous, but also um, she's got such an eye for kind of the foibles of, uh, you know, of these people who live in the small town of Avonlea and the way in which, you know, small towns have a kind of, um, you know, like a little bit of a, like everybody's in each other's business type of personality. Um, and the way in which Anne kind of shocks these people, but then also, you know, sort of eventually wins them over. Um, so I didn't want to, I, I didn't want to mess with her voice, um, which I think is a, a really beautiful and like still very, um, it feels really fresh and really lovely, her authorial voice. Um, so really what I did is, uh, is, is I wanted it to feel 
like, you know, if you were a, a younger reader who sat down to read this, um, I wanted it to feel like you would not feel like you had been given a sort of, you know, a child's version of this book. You know, you would feel like, oh, wow, like, I you know, this is this is exciting. Uh, this moves. This has energy. This, you know, that I can relate to this. Um, and uh, and all and the only difference really is that, like, you know, we've kind of put it into like a, a more compact and maybe a little bit more um, accessible package, um, you know, like. Because these, like, uh, it, it is quite a long book. Um, and actually, I think, you know, like, our adaptation ended up, like, not, like, super short, but at the same time, like, a, just, you know, in a container that feels a little bit more like, okay, like, I can manage this, but it doesn't condescend to me any in any way, right? Like, it's it still feels like this, you know, really wonderful, um, uh, not... Um, you know, not not something that's meant for kids, but something that's like, hey, wow, yeah, like this is awesome. I'm, you know, this I this this meets me where I am, and I can meet it where it is. Um, so really, I just I I went through it, and it, in a way, it was really uh, a lucky thing because once Anne settles in with Matthew and Marilla in Avonlea, um, the story does become, in certain ways, kind of episodic because you get these various, um, you get these pictures of different moments in Anne's life. So there's, you know, an episode, this, you know, like this wonderful chapter where she accidentally gets her best friend drunk because she's trying to give her raspberry cordial and she accidentally serves her wine, you know? So it's like, there's the story of that, you know? And then there's the story of getting, um, you know, of, of playing uh, at the Lily Maid and, and the boat sinking, or there's the story of when she breaks a slate over uh, her this, this boy named Gilbert Blythe's head at her school. Um, so she gets into all sorts of, um, you know, sort of individual, either, um, either, you know, messes or adventures. Um, and in a way that was really useful because I could go through first and kind of say, okay, are there any of these, uh, are there any of these individual episodes that we could take away um, and that would not harm the overall sort of arc and fabric of the book? And there were a few, I mean, like, it's, it's, it's always a funny thing to adapt something that you think is wonderful because of course, you know, every time you go like, maybe I could take that away. You go, Oh, but it's so great. You know, <laughs> but, um, but you know, like ha having to face that and, 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 you know, move past it and go, okay, you know, which of these are the most, um, the most resonant, uh, you know, create the, the best through line in terms of like what we want to learn about Anne and how Anne is growing, um, as a person throughout the book and which of them feel a little bit more like, okay, you know, maybe there's another story that, uh, that also shows us something similar. You know, we, we get this, this, uh, this point that's being made about Anne elsewhere, or maybe I can take a little bit from this chapter and, and seed it in elsewhere so that we get, you know, this wonderful moment or this wonderful sentence, but, um, but within, you know, a sort of, uh, uh, a more smoothly flowing context. So, um, so in a way, you know, the way Montgomery structured the book was very helpful to me because I could start by looking for these larger pieces that could maybe come away. Um, and then once that had happened, it was really a matter of like going in there and getting into the kind of fine detail and deciding, all right, you know, when, I mean, one thing about Anne is that she is loquacious. She talks a lot. And like, and again, it's it's very, you know, it's it's heartbreaking to cut anything she says because it's all wonderful. And at the same time, you know, in in trying to make a slightly more compact version of this thing, um, there you're never going to end up with an Anne who has, you know, who somehow talks too little. <laughs> so so it was possible to go in and, you know, kind of find some places where you, you know, where I could um align some of her stuff a little bit. Um, or, or again, like combine moments that happen in other places and just like, uh, give them a little bit more, um, 
like tighten them up a bit, you know? Um, so, so really, I mean, that's all there was to it. It was multiple steps. And that, and that always happens for me, um, whether it's a, I mean, it's a much longer process when it's a whole novel, but if it's, you know, when I do, uh, adaptations or Shakespeare plays, it's always a matter of multiple go throughs. There's sort of the round one, um, and then stepping back and looking at it. And then there's round two and three. And I, and I always think of it as, um, I think of it as kind of like drafts as a, as a draw, like a painting, uh, a painter or a, you know, an artist would draft, right. It's like, there's a sketch and then you start shading and then you start shading a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And, and the detail comes in and in and in as you go along. Um, so there, so I made multiple passes um, of the whole book uh, and just, and, and, you know, as, as I went along tried to sort of hone in, um, and the other aspect of it was the annotations, which were actually really uh, fun. So like making sure, again, that this feels like something that a young reader can pick up and feel really, um, really excited to get into the story and also feel like, you know, oh, not put off because they don't maybe know everything about Prince Edward Island in 1908. Like, that's fine. You don't need to know everything about Prince Edward Island in 1908. Um, for one thing, you know, the book is is very welcoming and will get you through that. But for another, you know, in this edition, we're annotating certain things just to like give people a little bit of context, right? Like if uh, if there's something about the the historical moment that feels useful to know, then um, then we've created annotations for that. Or if there are vocabulary words that seem like, you know, like let's not change this to something easier because it's a great word. And part of part of the whole story of Anne is a story about somebody who loves language and loves words and ultimately does sort of decide that she wants to teach and wants to write and wants to have this um, adult relationship with language. So it felt very right to do more annotating of words rather than um, simplifying them. And at certain times, you know, there were cuts or simplifications made, but a lot of times, you know, like um, if we came, you know, it's if Anne used a great big, you know, expensive four syllable word or something, you know, it felt really, it felt right to, um, to define that in the margins, because part of what's happening is I think through Anne, uh, a reader also sort of developing a delight in, in learning and in, and in language. Is, well, now that you've gone through this process, do you think that adapting this novel even though it's much bigger is easier or more difficult than adapting Shakespeare <laughs> it's honestly it's funny because it's like even though they have things in common it's it's just very different um I think I think it I don't think one was necessarily harder um this stuff this I mean just because of the the size of this, this definitely took longer um, and took a sort of um, even more, uh, you know, at, at, at certain points, um, you know, like getting even more serious about like, okay, you know, like we um, like something needs to go and you have to not be precious about it, you know, um, which is always like a, a, a difficult, but good attitude to get into. Um, I think that the thing that's really different is that when I'm adapting Shakespeare, I'm adapting it so that I, the director and a company of actors and designers now can express it on the stage as a new event in a way that actually that feels like it is uh, of us, through us and about something that we want to say. Right. So that it so like it is not it, it isn't an artifact. It's something that's happening right now. And it is 
ours in a way. Like it will, it'll always be his. And yeah, I mean, one of the reasons I uh, adore working with Shakespeare is that like, I mean, there's no, there's no breaking it, right? Like you can do whatever you want. You can, you know, people have messed with it and will continue to mess with it, you know, till the sun goes out. Um, and, and some, and some of the times that we do that will be fantastic. And some of them will be terrible and we'll be like, what was that? That made no sense at all, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't, you know, the thing itself is not is not broken. It stays, uh, stays there. And it stays this like wonderful potential thing to keep exploring. But, I, but what I'm doing is I actually am like, I am having a point of view as a director and I'm, and I and my company are having an opinion and, uh, and an ethos and a, you know, and a strong sort of vision about like, this is why we want to do this. This is what we're saying with it. This is why we're putting it into the world. Um, you know, and with Shakespeare, it's so vast that you're, you usually are choosing a kind of aspect of it to bring to the fore, right? You're saying like, okay, for me, Hamlet, which could be a play about, uh, grief, or it could be a play about, um, parents and children, or it could be a play about kingship, or it could be a play about generational conflict or politics or what, you know, it's like, there are all of these plays inside Hamlet and you usually are making a kind of decision about this is what this Hamlet is about. And this is what, how that thing connects to the moment that we're doing it in and why I think it's actually necessary to express that now. Um, I think that in adapting a novel, because what you're doing is you're, you are, you're still, you're still working on something that has an existence as, as a sort of like an object with its own integrity, right? You're not, you know, I'm not, I wasn't adapting Anne of Green Gables for the stage. Um, I was making a different version of it as a book. So for me, that task was much more about like maintaining what Lucy Maud Montgomery did and did so beautifully and not kind of, you know, doing the thing of like, okay, I'm a, I'm a director and I have something to say about this, um, you know, but, but like uh, creating a version of what she put into the world that can hopefully, uh, still make its own case for it, for why it's so wonderful and why it should be read and why, you know, it still can be such a, um, a source of delight and, um, and interest. Uh, but yeah, I think, I think that's the difference, you know, that, that, that it's not necessarily that one is harder. It's just that like, because theater, because theater isn't an object, it's an event. You just, you, you sort of are, you have a different relationship with the, the kind of moment around you. And you're really like inside that moment and responding to that moment and kind of making more of a, almost a sort of like case in court for like why we need to be looking at this thing in this moment. And a book, I think it's more, you know, this thing has an existence um, and I'm trying to res to like maintain and, and like uh, uh, respect what it is in and of itself. Um, and also just like bring it to a place where it feels like um, somebody might open it who maybe otherwise wouldn't have and go like, oh, this is really, this is, this is fascinating. This is great. Like, I'm going to get into this. So that is the perfect segue to my last question, because I really would love to know you as, as uh, I guess the adapter of this, of this story, what do you want readers to take away after reading this book? I think it, I, I really do think it has to do with, I think it has to do with the incredible capacity of this central character to see beauty and interest in the world, you know, like, and it's, and especially in, I mean, I just, I think that we live in such a, such a hard 
frightening moment. And, you know, as you said, um, for for all sorts of reasons involving, uh, you know, a pandemic and all of, uh, you know, everything that's going on around us um, and the fact that, uh, you know, a whole a whole huge group of kids have been, you know, have had to like do years of their education up against a computer screen. I mean, like these are really hard, hard things and can leave you in a place of feeling um, overwhelmed or scared or disempowered or like, you know, what you do doesn't make a difference. Like, so, you know, it's, it's, it's dark. Um, And there's such lightness in Anne. There's such, you know, such an ability to kind of, um, encounter the th- encounter the things that are sad, that are uh, overwhelming, you know, that really that are heartbreaking about the world, and to and and to and to get through them because you because you can still see see things that are beautiful and see things that are interesting. There's a really there's something I think about acting on stage. Um, uh, it's a re- it's you know it's just sort of a like one of those catchphrases but i do think it's true it's to be interested is to be interesting um and you know and it's when you watch actors on stage and you can see right like there's that person is you know their focus is really um uh you know they're 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 so focused on something there's something that's so sort of drawn them out of themselves right that becomes really fascinating to watch and Anne is maybe the most interested character <laughs> in literature right i mean that's a big statement but but she's up there like it's this it's this in you know i think that the world we live in really does its best to shut us down you know and to say that um uh you know it's it's too hard to go outside your door you know it's too hard to read the news it's too hard to uh you know to to sort of face things like um but what Anne says is like, be interested, you know, like continue to find the things that are fascinating um, and that are worthwhile and that are beautiful and that you can be curious about um, because that puts its own ethos and energy back into the world. You know, it's not, I I, I think it's kind of funny because like, you know, I feel like we have this, um, there's another character in literature, right? Like Pippi Longstockings that has entered the, um, uh, you know, the other, the other red braided, you know, young, young lady in literature, but who's sort of entered the common lexicon, I think, as sort of like the eternal optimist. Um, and that's an interesting thing, right? Because I actually think that Anne's not quite the same. It's not that she is innately an optimist. It's not that she kind of goes around and says like, everything is, is you know, like everything is for the best. You know, there's not that sort of candied spirit of like, um, you know, of, of, of just like hope for the sake of hope what it what it's actually more specific than that like i actually think it is about finding things to love right like finding beauty finding like like what what an incredible tree what an incredible poem what an incredible human being this girl who's my best friend what you know like this she she doesn't live in a beyond she lives in you know in in this place and she does encounter everything that's hard and uh and sorrowful about it but she also sees so much of um she also sees just so much of like what makes it worth being here and pursues that um so that's i feel like really what i what i was most moved by you know going back and and going through the book again um and what i felt like really resonated for me at least in this moment um and what i hope readers can maybe take away is this sense that you know, in a, in a place 
Like if you, you know, if you feel sort of overwhelmed uh, or in shadow or disempowered, you know, one of, one of the, one of the counters to that is your own curiosity, you know, is your own ability to be interested um, and to keep finding things that spur passion in you. It's so funny because almost the same things resonated with me with her because I, when I, when I start learning about something, I'll read an article about it or see it on, t- and then all of a sudden, like I go down this weird path where it's like, I have to learn everything about yeah. that certain thing. Um, so that's what resonated with me too. And you have, it has been such a pleasure talking with you. And um, I have, I have found our conversation really fascinating. I hope that <laughs> our listeners have too. I'm going to make sure that I uh, post the link so that everybody can purchase Anne of Green Gables on our website. Again, thank you so much, Sarah. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's been wonderful to talk about it. Mm-hmm.